This is Lend Me Your Ear. Conversations worth hearing. With Liam Halligan. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ear, a series of interviews on economics and politics with me, Liam Halligan. The city financier and policy thinker Sir Martin Jacob was born in 1929. A former barrister, he's been vice chairman of Climate Benson and deputy chairman of Barclays and was also chairman of the Canary Wharf Group, the London Docklands property company, during the epic takeover battle of the early 2000s. Sir Martin's held senior board positions at Rio Tinto and Marks and & Spencer, being chairman of Prudential and served on the court of the Bank of England. I started by asking Martin Jacob if he was relieved or distressed that the UK's finally resolved to get Brexit done. I'm relieved that the decision has been made. Of course, there was a strong case for remaining. There's also a reasonable and even strong case for leaving. But the one thing that does damage to everyone, not just people in the financial sector, but everyone, is uncertainty. Because with a period of uncertainty, people restrain themselves for investing in the future, and that suppresses economic activity, and that had been going on too long. So what I was really relieved about, Boris Johnson getting this big majority, was the end of uncertainty, so that we can see where the future is uh, going to unfold. A lot of people say Brexit will harm the city. You have tremendous experience in the Square Mile over many years, in many, many senior roles, both at the Bank of England and in the commercial sector. What's your instinct, Martin Jacob? I don't think uh, it will um, harm the city long term. Of course, in the short run, there's going to be a lot of negotiating uh, to do over the ability of our financial institutions to trade uh, with those on the continent of Europe. But it won't do it harm in the long run. And the reason for that is that the strength of London lies in the fact that it is the only centre where business can really be done. The business that people want to do can really be done on a multi-currency basis. Is in uh, the, only the only place it can be done in Europe is in London. So London doesn't have a serious competitor anywhere in Europe, and certainly not on the continent of Europe, which is part of the Eurozone. So I think it will survive and flourish. If you were putting an optimist's hat on, how might Brexit actually benefit the city? We've heard so much over <laughs> the years about how the city is going to be harmed, yet yes. employment in the square miles actually gone up since the referendum, despite yes. all that talk of, of people quitting in droves. Where can we look for benefits to the city as the UK looks to trade more and more with the far-flung, faster-growing parts of the world? Yes, well, that's a, that's a hard question to answer because it involves a lot of guesswork as well as the uh, benefit of experience. But I think that with uh, Brexit having occurred, it becomes much clearer to people in um, uh, China and Japan and elsewhere in the Far East and elsewhere in the world. It becomes much clearer for them to see that as far as Europe is concerned, London is the place to do business, and if they want to do financial business, whether with the UK or connected with the Eurozone or elsewhere in the European Union, they will know that it's London, and they'll spot the evidence, the efforts 
by the Parisian authorities and indeed by some uh, German authorities to draw business away from London and they'll see that that doesn't really really work and so they the uh, what London can offer becomes clearer and more evident to people throughout the world and just before we move on you'll have watched the negotiations after over the last few tortuous years um, a lot of the angst, of course, was caused by uh, the fact that there was no proper control of Parliament, yeah. and so Theresa May was, was was hamstrung, not least by her own side. Okay, Parliament's now in a different place. Boris Johnson has a large majority, but even that notwithstanding, how do you judge the negotiation to come? Do you think it will be um, different to what we've just seen? Do you think the UK, as some say, uh, have more of an upper hand now? Or do you think it will be equally as tough? I think it will be a tough uh, negotiation. I think we have a very strong hand in the UK, but I think the European Union negotiators also have a very strong hand. So the negotiations are going to be rough. And there are some real issues. Some of the standards which are really important to the European Union and indeed important to uh, everyone in business is, for example, an example of that is the prohibition against state aid. Uh, and um, of course, the negotiations over whether we can have different rules for state aid to what prevail in the Eurozone, uh, of course, that's going to be tough. That's a tough issue on which we disagree. So, um, but we have got a strong hand. They need to trade with us. Their business people will be. Um, urging the authorities to make sure that physical trade and indeed trade in invisibles doesn't get interrupted. Uh, business people will be urging that and so will our business people. So um, uh, the forces uh, in favour of a sensible deal are quite great. I'm not saying it's going to be easy or short. It's going to be long and difficult, but in the end I'm optimistic. Perhaps now that the possibility, any possibility of a reversal of Brexit, a reversal of the 2016 referendum, now that's passed, maybe the EU may think more about commercial imperatives rather than political gamesmanship. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely right. I think that is exactly right. They know now there's no going back. They know what the future holds and they'll be quite sensible about it because they'll the political leaders will be forced to be sensible by their businesses. Let's move on to the broader macro environment. Uh, you, you've written with some elegance over recent years about the dangers of ongoing quantitative easing, the dangers of low, even negative interest rates. We're now at 0.75 base rate in the UK, but of course that's still a lot lower than the rate of inflation. So in real terms, our interest rates are negative. Why do you think there's been so little discussion of this historic anomaly of endless monetary expansion and negative interest rates here in the UK, the Eurozone, the US, across much of the world? Well, you've asked me a very, um, uh, a very penetrating question because the answer to why there hasn't been discussion about it uh, amazes me because low interest rates for a long period such as we have had do a very large amount of damage to our economy. And uh, I think it's amazing that that hasn't been 
more discussion about it. Uh, amen to that. So, in particular, you've highlighted how low interest rates actually undermine the banking sector, undermine the stability of the banking sector. How does that work? Well, I'll tell you, I'll, tell you, I'll start uh, from a slightly different angle. First of all, as is obvious, low interest rate damage the income of people who've got uh, savings in the bank on deposit accounts. They have less money to spend. So that suppresses the economy a bit, quite a lot actually, because there are many retired people in that category with less spending money. And because you have less spending money for savings, you actually have to save more, and that takes more out of discretionary spending income. So that suppresses the uh, economy even a bit further. And then over and above that, at what I might call the retail spending level, Companies which have defined benefit pension schemes find it more difficult to generate the income within their pension funds to pay the pensions. So they have to transfer more funds to their pension funds, taking less out of their available income for future investment in their businesses. And that too suppresses uh, economic activity and Crucially, and very important, it suppresses investment in productive uh, industry. And so those are just three reasons why uh, a long period of low interest rates such as we've had are damaging things. Over and above that, of course, as you perfectly well know, low interest rates are a signal for the authorities thinking that there is economic trouble ahead. And that makes people hesitant. In my role as a, as a, a columnist, a sort of you know, public-facing economist, if you like, I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with business folk who are trying to make head and a tail, really, of the economic environment. And you know, ultra-low interest rates, endless monetary expansion, I can't think of a more technical term, Martin. It just freaks them out. Yeah. It makes them feel that there is trouble ahead. Mm. The whole thing could go pear-shaped quickly, and so they're sitting on cash. That's right. Until something happens. So, my That's view, right. my view, my theory for a long time has been, and I've, I've been writing this for half a dozen years now, is actually a rise in interest rates would be a stimulation, uh, rather than um, uh, slowing the economy down, as the textbooks would say, because it would signal the beginning of the end of these mad post-financial crisis policies and a move towards normality. Now, we're not going to find that in any economics textbook, but my instinct says that's true. What's yours? I think, I think your instinct is correct and along the right lines. But this is difficult to engineer, so don't think it's possible uh, in Threadneedle Street to make a decision for the sterling in the UK. Uh, without taking into account the overall international effect. If interest rates are going to uh, be increased, which I strongly advocate, it's got to be done in coordination with the Federal Reserve in uh, the United States, with the Central, U European Central Bank in Frankfurt, and with the Central Bank in Tokyo. They've all got to get the message but there must be a gradual rise in interest rates. Otherwise, you get a, a disruptive 
seriously disruptive effect on the foreign exchange market as uh, interest rates go up in one place and not in another. That's very disruptive and people, governments accusing each other of competitive devaluation and so forth. That, that's right. If, if one government raises its interest rates uh, and therefore its exchange rate goes up, it may be ceding competitive advantage to the others. So it yes. will be politically unpopular as well as being potentially politically unpopular anyway. Uh, so I agree with you. We need a kind of coordinated rate rise, a kind of inverse plaza accord for students of uh, mid-1980s economic policy making. Uh, but there's something else, of course, isn't there? There's the elephant in the room. There's the financial markets, because rather than holding governments to account uh, as they should in some ways, it strikes me that financial markets are actually holding governments and the central banks that they control increasingly hostage. If you dare to raise interest rates, if you dare to even think of raising interest rates, if you dare to not cut interest rates, we're going to tank the markets, you're going to lose an election, um, so do what we say. I think if we, um, uh, there may be people who think like that, but if it was done uh, wisely and sensibly and with a little um, a period of a run into it with central bankers talking reasons, arguing the case properly, I think that danger is uh, minimized, in fact it's minimized to zero because uh, low interest rates do not suit banks. It means that the margins on uh, commercial lending are low and uh, it, it would definitely be uh, healthier for banks' uh, P&L account if interest rates were a little bit higher. It's got to be done slowly, it's got to be done gradually, and it's got to be done with uh, a full explanation of why it's happening, and uh, that requires uh, a joint agreement between governments and central banks. It ought to be what the central bankers talk about at Jackson Hole when they meet in Wyoming. Every summer. Every summer. But they tend to talk about environmental policy and, yeah. and, and global poverty. Yeah. Um, also important topics, but not necessarily for that forum. You know, I'm concerned, though, that what you say won't happen. There seem to be signs it was starting to happen. Janet Yellen, for whom I have a lot of respect, yeah. I think she's the best US central banker since the, the late Paul Volcker, actually. Yeah. So she managed to raise rates. She signaled to the markets. It was done in an orderly way. She got seven or eight rate rises in um, over a number of years. Yeah. And then Jerome Powell comes in, Trump's appointment. He does one rate rise. But now, with the president calling him a blockhead on Twitter, urging him to cut rates, he's cut three times. Yeah. So I think the market, the political machine, has shown its prowess there. It's not going to stand a raise in interest rates, certainly not in the run-up to the current race for the White House. No, I know. I, I think the trouble is uh, Jerome uh, is not strong enough in public against the president. I mean, that's a fact, unfortunately, as we've seen, and it's a, it's a great shame. But you see, um, uh, governments are um, uh, to some extent, I won't say guilty, because that's a silly word to use, but they're in favour of low interest rates, because all of them have got a, a large amount of debt on which mm. interest has to be paid. Mm. And so low interest rates in the short run 
suit governments because the bill for interest on their borrowings is less. And that's a factor which, uh, because all politics is rather short term and all democratic politics is rather short term, as you know, uh, that's unfortunately a uh, quite dominant factor in this debate. We're already paying about £50 billion a year on debt yeah. service, the government, that's more than we spend on schools, yeah. and that's at very, very low, in some cases, yeah. negative interest rates on, 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 in real terms uh, on, sure. on, on, on gilts. So in that case, why can't we go on like this forever? What's wrong with going on for, with ultra-low interest rates forever? What's going on? What's wrong with carrying on a little bit of QE here, a little bit of QE there, um, as long as we don't completely overdo it and go yeah. totally for what you might call, you know, sort of Roman Empire or Zimbabwe-style economics, why can't we carry on with these unconventional policies? Well, they, well, of course we can carry on with them, and indeed there is a danger that we will. But what is happening underneath is what you've got to look at, and what, uh, one of the main things that you've got to look at, I think, which is long-term causing damage is that one of the effects of it is the shortage of investment in the future productivity of our industry and that is badly needed. We've seen some bad productivity figures that comes from principally in my opinion from the failure to invest in the future and I think investment in the future is always what's made our economies healthy and strong and that's uh, low interest rates for a prolonged period are very, very bad for, a lot of, for investment. So you think we're getting malinvestment and low volumes of investment anyway because interest rates are, are, are low because zombie companies, if you yeah. like, are being kept alive. Those resources should be diverse, diverted towards uh, companies that can grow much faster in a more productive way, more technology and so on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that... Um, uh, low uh, investment in the future is uh, exactly uh, what undoes economies. You can see economies collapsing uh, in several countries around the world through, um, usually through left-wing governments concentrating on extracting the maximum amount from the economy in the short run and neglecting the long term and all those all those policies uh, ruin an economy in the long run. And one of the things um, which is happening now, which is uh, definitely a worry, to me anyway, and I think to a lot of sensible people, uh, is that these very low interest rates cause uh, capital assets, whether a house or land or stocks and shares, cause them automatically to go up. All capital assets uh, go up in value automatically if interest rates come down. And the ordinary working people don't get any benefit from that. If you think of what's happened to house prices, people who were lucky enough to have bought a house uh, 15 years ago have seen uh, the value of that uh, substantially increase because of low interest rates through no skill or effort on their part and uh, that's happened to everyone who owns capital assets of the kinds I've mentioned and it comes at the expense 
of the ordinary working people. Rising wealth inequality. Yes. So it begins to justify. Uh, it begins to justify the malign policy, policies advocated by Mr. Piketty. I don't know if you've read Mr. Piketty. Indeed, that that tome doorstopper on, uh, yes. on 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 inequality. I agree with you. I think that aspect of QE and low interest rates, the fact that it's a driver of wealth inequality, uh, has been. Uh, until quite recently, largely overlooked by those advocating it, and it's another reason, in my view, to bring these policies to heel. People of an age which is in charge uh, are greatly affected by the fact that inflation used to be a constant, mm. and so they're always worried about the re-emergence of inflation and constantly worrying about that, and of course they can happily keep interest rates low when inflation is quiescent. But what they've, I think, forget is that there are very good reasons why inflation is low at the moment. Unions have very little power. Uh, Labour is willing to accept uh, rather subdued uh, uh, wages. And also, the technological advances, and this is a thing nearly all economists miss, in my opinion. The technological advances which have occurred through the uh, internet and so forth and through the application of uh, the new technologies in the industry have made it possible to maintain the same standard of living with less monetary outlay. Everything is more competitive. You buy a car, uh, that is a competitive thing. The car lasts much longer, it uses much less petrol, uh, and so motoring is a great deal cheaper than it used to be, in spite of higher fuel prices. And the same thing goes with uh, travelling. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the technological advances uh, do away with the amount of travelling which used to occur, delivery and so forth, is now comes uh, over the uh, deliveries made by the internet companies, so you don't have to go shopping so often. So there are many economies which flow directly from the technological advances, and that enables people to live a very same life with less money spent, and that's a very subduing factor for inflation. And I think economists have maybe missed the point that inflation is subdued for very good reasons, and we don't uh, need to fear its revival in the way that we used to. Very interesting. Let's move on to um, your views on Europe and, and the single currency in particular. I recall quite a few years ago you writing articles about the euro when it was very fashionable policy uh, here in the UK and it was being launched, a great shiny uh, hope. Um, how did you feel back in 2010, 11, 12 when there were very clear signs that the single currency could indeed break up as many of us had warned uh, and do you think that danger still exists today? I do think it still exists. The euro has done enormous damage to the eurozone. As you know, the economic performance of the Eurozone in comparison to what's happening in the rest of the world is very poor. 
comparatively are very, very poor indeed, but much worse than the statistics on the uh, overall economic performance of businesses within the Eurozone is the effect it's had on employment. For years and years and years, unemployment rates in Italy, Portugal, Spain and Greece have been uh, disastrously high and quite unnecessarily high because of the, in my opinion, principally, of course there are other reasons, but principally because of the Euro. The Euro uh, has its interest rates set by the strong northern parts of the Eurozone and those do not suit the economies of southern Europe and those economies have all been grievously damaged. And they can't depreciate their currency. They can't depreciate the currency. So you get this huge inequality across the Eurozone between North and South. Exactly. And this cultural uh, gap between the West and the East of the Eurozone. It, exactly. It, it strikes me as a, a very unstable structure. But again, Martin, again, why is it that there's so little discussion about the very real possibility that the Eurozone could break up. Yes, I, I, I'm afraid the uh, uh, politics uh, at the top of the countries now within the Eurozone uh, are such that you can't have that decision in a, on a rational basis. Uh, unfortunately, everything is public uh, at all the meetings held between them. Everybody leaks enough of what goes on at those meetings, and the political leaders don't engage in uh, discussing what really needs to be discussed and decided on, which is a major, major thing to make the Eurozone work. There's got to be an agreement about fiscal transfers. There has to be. From the rich to the poor country. Can you ever, I can't ever see it happening. I can't see, I can't see the northern Eurozone economies, I can't see their politicians, their voters, ever accepting a proper pooling of fiscal resources, banking resources, that you need to make a single currency work. Yes, well, of course you're right. And if they, if they bother to, which of course they do, obviously, so I'm being insulting unnecessarily, uh, if you look at European history and the um, formation of Germany, which uh, I date from 1871, you can see that what happened in Germany was that the railways, starting off in the early 1830s, uh, on the basis of the free market caused by the Zollverein after Napoleon was defeated, allowed the economies of the German states to become coordinated and they traded with each other absolutely freely. It was only after that occurred that they uh, unified and became one country in 1871. And it was only after that that they uh, decided on a single currency. The single currency came last in that process. And if you go back even further to the history of the United States, it took between 1776 all the way to 1913 to set up yes. one independent central bank for the whole of that yes. country. Uh, and the whole point of America was nation building, was the forging of a national identity, a national psychological story, if you like, um, civil wars um, and, and all the rest of it. And yet it still took 150 odd years 
to get a single central bank. They tried setting up central banks across America in different parts of the country, or different sides of the Mason-Dixon line, and of course they were torched to the ground by the people <laughs> from the other side for these yes. policy coordination reasons. But why is it that even here in the UK with our apparently robust free press, I still see, read very little on this issue. The, the very real prospect as I see it, but for you know, endless money printing by the ECB, that you know, this thing could collapse. Right I see it as the biggest systemic economic danger in the world at the moment. No, you're right, but there is a time scale difference between um, the position as you're putting it and the position I see it, as I see it, because I think this situation of gradual failure can go on for a very long time, unfortunately. The only thing which could change it, which I certainly hope does not happen, and I do not predict or foresee, is a uh, uh, rapid uh, catastrophic collapse, which would enable sense maybe to come through from the ruins of a collapse. I don't see that occurring, so what I do think is going to happen, unfortunately, uh, is a long period with no uh, real effort to address this fundamental issue. Uh, even if you look at the government of Italy, uh, you find that they can't, which is basically a strong country in some ways. Mm. Uh, a lot of manufacturing skill, a lot of smart people. Yeah, absolutely, and wonderful industry, mm. as we know. Even they um, can't really face up to the absolute necessity of fiscal transfer and they should be there demanding that progress is made on that front mm. but you won't get any progress uh, without a very very strong push pushing the governments of Germany and Holland and uh, so forth. I, I, I sincerely I sincerely hope that, 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 that you're right. Let's just bring it back closer to home um, as we come to an end I remember you were very critical back in the late 90s when I was a young cub reporter on the FT. I remember the Lord's Economic Affairs Select Committee and you brought out a report really criticising the sort of new dawn of new Labour, not so much the independence of the Bank of England, but more the policy that was presented as a corollary of that. It isn't, of course, it's just a separate thing taking regulatory control of the banks away from the Bank of England and giving it to a new body, then the FSA, the Financial Services Authority, which took its cue from the Treasury and the then mm -hmm. Chancellor. Uh, I guess that was the idea, uh, which is now, of course, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. Do you feel that report was vindicated? And again, if we could get on the tube now and go to Threadneedle Street and we can have a chat with Andrew Bailey and our respective friends there, what would you say about how we structure our uh, regulatory regime here in the UK as, the, as Britain goes into the next post-Brexit chapter? I'm, uh, I'm rather prejudiced on the subject because uh, I see um, the regulatory structure in the UK, which has really been in the UK's financial sector, I should say, which has really been constructed since uh, Big Bang. So since the mid-80s? Yes, 
since the mid-80s, when we needed, when London became completely international, and it was obvious that the old boy net, which used to be the uh, governing structure of the UK financial sector, I use that phrase uh, really to cover a situation in which uh, regulation was principally driven by the fact that dishonest and incompetent and uh, unworthy people were squeezed uh, out by the squeezed, system. Yeah. Squeezed out by the system. Uh, that had to be um, replaced when London became truly international. And uh, so, unfortunately, uh, we had to have a constructed regulatory system. We've now got that. It is very, very expensive. Uh, the amount of money spent on regulation, both by the regulators themselves and more particularly by the people who are regulated, all of whom have to have large teams of able people trying to deal with all this regulation. Uh, it's extremely expensive and it's not altogether uh, effective, as we know from mistakes which have been made and as a result of which people, ordinary individual retail people, have lost money, lost substantial sums of money. So um, I think uh, the regulatory system is too complicated. I don't think there are enough able people willing to go into the regulatory structure to run those regulatory bodies. I think they have a better organized and better tradition in the United States where if you look at the SEC, it's got a lot of young lawyers on their way up working for the SEC, trying their best in a very intelligent way to make sense of it, and coming out afterwards and going into partnerships and succeeding uh, in those partnerships as a result. We don't have that in the UK. We recruit regulators who spend their whole time regulating and very often you don't get good people doing that because it isn't, it isn't necessarily to everyone exciting, constructive work. So um, I'm afraid there is a, a problem we've got with our regulation. What do you think of the post-financial crisis actions that we took to stabilise and shore up our banking system and trying to rein in the, the excesses of the investment banks which were there? for all to see. I'm thinking in particular of the, the so-called Vickers reforms that tried to separate um, investment banking, if you like, from commercial slash retail banking while allowing them to be uh, kept within the same legal entities, within the same universal banks. Do you think the Vickers reforms are robust enough? Will they work? Would you like to see a complete separation, a kind of Glass-Steagall? I wouldn't like to see the complete separation, but I don't approve the um, uh, Vickers uh, reforms separating out the uh, retail businesses of the big banks from their commercial business. I don't think that makes any sense. If a bank's well run, uh, a bank is run on the basis that the depositors can be repaid uh, when their deposits fall due, and that applies whether they're retail deposits or commercial deposits. And a good banker can both do, can, from the same institution, can do commercial banking 
and retail banking without endangering either. Doesn't the investment banking culture always win though if they're in the same entity with the same board? Won't risks, I mean look we need investment banking of course, we need to take risks and fund marginal projects yeah. and uh, uh, and all of that, that's the, that's the motor of capitalism. But shouldn't those deposits be kept well away from the deposits of ordinary firms and households that do enjoy a taxpayer-backed guarantee up to a certain cap? Well, of course, it all um, turns on uh, one's view of whether you can insist on banks being well-run or not. Because a well-run bank, which is a universal bank, even though there is a large amount of capital markets business done within it, uh, can be perfectly safe, but it has got to be well run, and that requires people who are strong, who are able, hard-working, and know what's happening, and can see the extent of the risks being run, and uh, if that is prevails, a bank which is a universal bank uh, can be run perfectly safely. And if you look at um, uh, J.P. Morgan, for instance, uh, which does a very large amount of capital markets business, it's a perfectly safe uh, bank. And that's the aim. I think that should be uh, the aim. And the reason I say that is this, that uh, if you look at the way business is financed, uh, over three quarters of the finance of business has to be provided through the capital markets and not through bank deposits. Mm. And that means that a big commercial bank needs the um, capital markets business, needs the investment banking business to, to provide the service on economical terms to the, to the customers. And that's why I was involved with uh, Barclays Bank's uh, uh, step towards investment banking and universal banking way back from the time of Big Bang. It can work if it's well managed. Well, let, it can work safely. Let's hope so. Um, and just finally, Martin, you've been involved in, in public life for many, many years, uh, business, politics, uh, governance and so on. What's your general view these days about the calibre of the people who represent us, the calibre of the politicians and the ministers? Um, do you feel that we've got the best people we could possibly have running the show or do you think we need to do more to attract um, people into the upper echelons of public life? Well of course uh, I think there are some very very able people and uh, I'd like to see um, uh, I'd like to see that continue and I'd like to see people admire uh, politicians so that young people, up-and-coming people wanted to go into politics and wanted to go in. They've got to be admired and to be admired, they've got to do the right things and be successful. But there is one uh, real drawback in what's going on in the Western developed democracies, and that is the extremely short-term nature of political decisions now. You can't, you can't run things successfully and safely and easily on a very short-term basis, because a lot of short-term decisions have very harmful uh, long-term effects. And I'd like to try and think of a way of making 
uh, it easier for governments to take long-term decisions by finding a better way to uh, get the um, message across to the general public and to the voters. Isn't myopia the inevitable cost of democracy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you look at... Um, this is just a final observation, and I'm afraid people are going to jump down my throat for making it. If you look at a company like Boeing, a big US company with many, many other companies dependent on orders from Boeing, and you see one of the finest engineering companies in the world uh, stop making engineering its highest priority and start paying too much attention to shareholder returns and the financial results of their uh, activities. If you see that happening, and you see engineering no longer as the top priority, you have to start to worry that uh, things are beginning to go wrong, and they have gone wrong with Boeing, as you perfectly well know. And I see that as a, um, an effect of of uh, uh, going from the long-term view to the short-term view. And I'd love to uh, think of a way of trying to reverse that trend. Martin Jacob, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been enjoyable. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not give us a rating or subscribe at lendmeyourear.co.uk or using the iTunes store. Lend me your ear. Conversations worth hearing.